0: Welcome to the Cosmosis podcast. This is episode number thirty-three with special guest Ricky Skaggs. And after a long hiatus, yes, it has returned. The Cosmoses podcast is back, and uh, back with with a bang. Um, I talked to Ricky a, a long while back about uh, doing the show, and he agreed to do it. And he was kind enough to invite me up to his studio space, and uh, we recorded right in his office just yesterday, as a matter of fact, and, uh, yeah, so I think you're really going to enjoy this show. We had a a little bit of a limited time frame to work with, and so, uh, we, we had about an hour, and, uh, we did the best we could to fit in as much as we could, and, uh, I think you're going to enjoy it. I do ask if you enjoy this show, that you share it on social media, and, uh, rate and review it on whatever format you're listening on. And uh, there's a new way to support the show if you enjoy it. Uh, You can just go to com and either on the homepage or the uh, podcast page, there are donate buttons on both of those. So you can just directly support the show. And with that, I'm going to get right into the interview with Ricky Skaggs. Well, first of all, thanks a lot for... uh, for having me up and, and doing this.
1: Thanks for asking an old gray haired man. I'm glad to <laughs> glad to do it with you, Justin. This is this is exciting.
0: Um, I do these quite a bit, and um, sometimes I followed like a certain format of s- starting with like the beginning of your career, moving uh-huh. forward. And I, I like to deviate from that some too. So maybe yeah. let's do that today. If, if well, want. we
1: can't start from the end and go back. Right. So we'll probably yeah. better start the other way. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Yeah, That's true. Cuz I don't have no idea what's going to how this thing's going to end up, but
0: Yeah. Well, let's do that then. Let's start from the beginning and you tell us about what uh what inspired you originally to to pick up an instrument. My mom and <clears throat> my mom and dad um
1: they sang in church, they s- would sing at home, and my mother was always singing around the house and and uh I would hear mom and dad sang together, you know, and uh, I would hear the part that she sang with my dad, which was the tenor, mm-hmm. you know, the third. And um, so when dad was at work and mom was singing and before I went to school, she'd start singing something and I'd just, I don't know, I'd, I'd hear that third part and I'd just sing what she would sing. Mm-hmm. And uh, but I'd be in the other room in the house, you know, just kind of not not wanting anybody to really know much about it, you know. But I was, I was singing that part. And uh, so she told on me, to, told my dad. She said, yeah. he's singing. He's singing, you know. And singing harmony with me. And so my dad, my dad had a brother um, that was younger than him by two, three years. And they used to play together. They They were like a little brother's duet kind of thing my dad played guitar and my uncle played mandolin and sung tenor and uh my uncle my dad got uh rejected from um the army he had rheumatic fever when he was a young boy and it scarred his lungs and they just they they wouldn't take him and uh my uncle was young and stout and strapling you know and and just you know so they took him, and and uh, he was in one year and one day, and they they went to Guam, you know, and uh, and he uh, he got killed there, okay. and it just really uh, it just crushed my dad, you know, and um, but I think he made one of those inner vows. He never said it to me at the time, you know, but he made an inner vow. I know that uh, if he ever had a son that showed any kind of musical aptitude or whatever, you know that he would get him a mandolin and hopefully he'd sing tenor, you know, have somebody to sing with again, you know. Mm -hmm. And so, but I'm telling you, it was very wise and genius on my dad's part to get me an instrument that was my size. I think one of the mistakes that that a lot of moms and dads make, unless now these kids are just like, I've got to have a guitar. I've got to have a guitar, you know, mm-hmm. uh, or banjo. I think I think it was wise on my dad anyway to, uh, to get a small instrument and let me start on a mandolin, you know, because I didn't have this big, massive hulk of a, gu- of a guitar or something like that to have to stretch and, and try to learn how to mm-hmm. play and hurt my fingers and stuff like that, you know, because I think that's what gets a lot of kids... Uh, you know, disenchanted with It's with it just the pain of going through it early, you know. Yeah. And, uh, but anyway, Dad bought me this little box mandolin, his little old small thing that he found in a, in a pawn shop in, uh, I think he was in Lima, Ohio. He was up there working a welding job. And, of course, we lived in eastern Kentucky, so that was about a five or six hour drive for Dad. On two lane roads, especially back in them days. But anyway, when he came in one night from, he'd come home on Friday nights, you know, and and spend Friday night or the rest of Friday um, and Saturday. And sometimes he'd go home, go to church with us on Sunday, or sometimes he'd just have to leave early and drive if it was a real, real long drive. So he brought, I woke up and that little mandolin was in my bed, Mm -hmm. you know, and man, it just, the way it felt and the way I looked at it, it was so pretty. And, and uh, I think he gave $5 for it. It wasn't new or anything. But, mm-hmm. but anyway, he showed me three chords on it, G, C, and D. And then he had to go back to work on Sunday. and, and
0: uh, Let me interject for just yeah. a second. How old were you at the time?
1: I was five. Five. Yeah, I was five. And uh, so Dad went, back, went, went to work, went back to work, and, um, and he got snowed in. And couldn't get home for two weeks, and uh, so. But when he came home after the second weekend, he came home, and I was singing and playing and changing chords. I could hear the changes that it the, that it needed to be. You know, when I was singing a song, and it just you know blew him away. And and uh, Dad had orig- had a had a guitar when him and Mom got married. That was that and. And about $25 in an old car is about all they had when they got married. Didn't have a place to live or anything. And, and uh, anyway, they... Uh, Dad had this guitar, and uh, but he had, he had loaned it out to a friend, to a family friend. And so he, instead of trying to get that guitar back from him, you know, he just... Uh, he took off and drove to Ashland, Kentucky, and uh, Zwick's Music down in Ashland. And he went down there and bought a... Fifty, I think it's a fifty-nine. I bought it in nineteen sixty, but it was a, it was a fifty-nine D twenty-eight Martin, mm. you know,
0: yeah.
1: and came came home and and uh, we started playing and singing together, and that's 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 how that that part of it happened.
0: Mm-hmm. That
1: that was the first real love of music that I that I had where I that I had an instrument and I was going to start playing on it, and and I've i you know. I just remember carrying it around all the time. I remember I had a little wagon that I would, you know, I'd still pull around, you know, um, yeah. uh, and I'd, I'd, uh, I'd, I'd have that thing in my wagon just rattling around. I don't think think it even had a case or anything, you know, <laughs> and uh, so, but I. You know, when these other kids had a security blanket that they'd go to bed with, I'd take that mandolin to bed, and I just I just keep it in my bed, and I'd hold on to it, and I'd go to sleep, and I'd wake up, and there'd be and and I'd I'd set up in my bed, and I'd just kind of pluck it a little bit, you know. But I love the sound of it, I always have, and always will, and I I love it so much even today. That's my that's my number one go to instrument is the mandolin. Although I've played a lot of guitar and fiddle and. Stuff like that in, in different bands, but uh, the mandolin is something that uh, it suits me. It it it's uh, it's the instrument that I feel like I can make maybe the most expression on and uh, create the most uniqueness to me. You know mm-hmm. that, that I play.
0: Well, um, what were those early um, years like? In terms of, I'm sure you played probably a lot in church, uh, yeah. But other, other than that, what about uh, did you did your dad take you to a lot of just jam sessions and that sort of thing?
1: There wasn't a lot of jamming, yeah, in Eastern Kentucky at that time. wasn't a lot of bands. There was one <clears throat> one band, this band uh, Walter Adams and the and the Playboys was that was their name, and it was Walter Adams and a guy named Elmer Burchett, and um, and sometimes my my cousin, if he was sober, would play fiddle with us. Euless Wright, and then me and mom and dad, you know, and um, um, and we would we'd play, you know, we'd play, uh, I don't know, like talent shows. Or uh, I know I was in a lot of talent shows as a kid, but. There was a place called the Pan Theater uh, over in Portsmouth, Ohio, and we would go over there and play. as a big tour for us, but it'd go to Ohio, you mm-hmm. know, another state, yeah. And uh, cross the river there in Ashland, and drive up, you know, the river there, and, and uh, play in Portsmouth, and um, and then we would uh, we'd play, you know, just different little things around home. Um, mo- a lot of it was in church, uh, and then you know um, we would have we would have some. We'd have some people come over to the house, and and we'd jam a little bit around the house. But, but it wasn't like there was twenty jam sessions going on. Which one you want to go to? Like there mm-hmm. is nowadays. You know, there just wasn't that many players around. There was a there was a man that uh, used to play with uh, with Walter Adams. His name was Thurman Endicott, and uh, <clears throat> he had a wandering eye. He had I don't know he'd been he had been stuck or been shot or been something. I don't know. He's a little old short guy. Looked like Pee Wee Lambert, real little guy Mm -hmm. and played mandolin. And, and his eye would just go everywhere. And I just, it just freaked me out when I, when I'd seen, but, but he had this, he had this, uh, this F5 Gibson is a, is a new one. And, uh, oh, he didn't want me to even touch it. You know, it was so, (laughs) it was so, you know, and, uh, so finally one day, one day he let me play it. And, and, uh, you know, he didn't play. Let me play it long. You know, and uh, and uh, and he sung. He sung high tenor too. You know, and Daddy called him high therm. And uh, <laughs> and uh, yeah. but uh, they had a they had a good sound. Them guys did. They they, they did a, a record and and uh, uh, I don't know if I could even find it now. But Walter Adams used to play, or uh, not Walter Adams. Um, oh, the fiddle player. Uh, Moon Mullins used to play in this band. I used to play with uh, with uh, Walter Adams and him. Uh, but it, was, it was Paul Mullins back in those days. He yeah. was before he started his radio journey and became Moon Mullins. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, anyway, um, that was uh, that was a, a real. I don't know. It was a grow. You know, a growing time for me, and I was getting tunes in my head and just a little old things. I was learning to sing and, and uh, listening to the radio a lot. You know, Mom, uh, mm-hmm. Mom loved... We had some great radio stations back in them days. Man, the Prestonsburg, Kentucky had a, had a good radio station. Uh, Grayson, Kentucky had a good station. Paintsville had a good station. And Olive Hill, that's where Paul Mullins ended up being in, in Olive Hill. And uh, man... Of course, there was good music back in those days too. Uh, I mean, country was just so good, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, George Jones and that's before Haggard ever come out, you know, or Buck yeah. Owens ever come out, you know, that that we ever heard. Mm-hmm. But George Jones was great, and and of course, Webb Pierce and Ray Price, and and uh, and Mom loved George Jones, and uh, and uh, anyway, so we listened to real real country radio, and of course, Kitty Wells and people like that, you know, Patsy Cline, and. Um, but hey, you could hear on the same stations you would hear Munn, you know, and you'd hear Jimmy Martin, and you'd hear, uh, you'd hear Flat and Scruggs, and you'd hear the Stanleys. Oh my God, with Stanley Brothers, they they just wore them out because they were from right over the hill in Kent or in Virginia, you know. Yeah. So they were like our our local boys, you know. And mm-hmm. uh, so, man, I, I grew up hearing you know Ralph and Carter, and of course, never really got to hear Pee Wee. Uh, Until later on, until me and Keith met, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, when we were 15, Uh, I started buying a bunch of old records. And uh, I guess maybe that I'd heard some of the records like Lonesome River and White Dove. White Dove was a song that they would play a lot, even in eastern Kentucky, as as a, just an old record that still had life to it, you know. and, mm-hmm. and uh, But but they wouldn't say, that's Ralph and Carter Stanley with Pee Wee Lambert singing, like, you know, like Eddie Stubbs now. He tells every musician in the band, you know, which mm-hmm. is great. Yeah. So I didn't know the personnel. I didn't know who Pee Wee was at that time, you know. But I heard the name Pee Wee Lambert um, later on, even before I met Keith, my cousin that I was talking about, uh, Paul Wright, Ulysses Wright, lived down in Ashland, Kentucky. And uh, Pee Wee Lambert and his wife uh, Hazel moved from Columbus, Ohio. They moved, or moved from, I guess they might have been in Bluefield, West Virginia for a while uh, when they were with Ralph and Carter, uh, or even Grundy, Virginia. They could have lived over there somewhere. But they moved when they, after, they le- after Pee Wee left Ralph and Carter, um, I guess that would have been 52, maybe, 51 or 52. Um, they moved to Ashland, Kentucky, mm-hmm. and Pee Wee took a road job. I mean, just like working on the road with this guy, and they and this guy played and sang, you know, and and, uh, and Pee Wee would sing and play, you know, record with him. Curly Parker was his name. And my cousin, Uless Wright, played fiddle with them. So when we'd see my cousin playing fiddle, or when he'd come by our house or something like that to visit... He would talk about Pee Wee, you know, and tell, tell us about uh, oh Pee Wee Lambert, you know, and because Pee Wee was a great mandolin player and a great singer, so uh, mm-hmm. I was I kind of so I kind of stored him in the back of my head as somebody that that I probably needed to check out sometime, but I really didn't know the history that he had with the Stanleys, you know, until until after me and Keith met and and I saw this this record that I bought and uh, and looked and there was Ralph and Carter in the middle and they were just young boys. They looked like they might have been 19 or 20, you know. And this kid, uh, well, he, he looked about the same age, but he, he was standing on Ralph's right, and he had this F4 mandolin. It was an old black-and-white picture. And an old man standing on Carter's left... Play, playing the fiddle. And it looked like they was in somebody's living room uh, in the in the er, late 40s, early 50s. Uh, had to be late 40s uh, because Pee Wee would have had uh, the Pee Wee mandolin uh, by 46. So this must have been 40, uh, 43, 44, something like that, that, that they took this picture. Because you could see the wallpaper. It mm-hmm. just looked so old. You could yeah. tell that it was an old, old house. And uh, But that was the cover on the, uh, this... Uh, Um, I guess there's Richard Tone label records uh, Uh that that they did. And that's where I really got to know Pee Wee and got to know his sound and everything like that.
0: Yeah. Well, um, talk about how you... uh,
1: You have no commercial interruptions? No commercial interruptions. Oh, that's good.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we go straight through. Um, Talk about how you got to uh, play with Ralph eventually.
1: When I was six years old, uh, we found out that Bill Monroe was coming to Martha, Kentucky mm-hmm. and, um, man, we wanted to, I wanted to go see him so bad, I, you know, cause I'd heard him on the radio and heard his records and stuff and we'd listen to him on the Grand Ole Opry, but I didn't know what he looked like. We didn't have, you know, our, our internet didn't work up there then. Our <laughs> 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 iPhone wasn't working. Mm-hmm. I couldn't Google anything. Uh, I, I didn't even know what he looked like. And uh, so we went, and we got up there a little early, you know, and we, we wanted, to, wanted to see him drive in, you know. And uh, <clears throat> so I'd been playing around the area there, you know, since I was five in churches and little, you know, bean stringings and cakewalks and stuff like that at high schools. I mean, crazy stuff. So people kind of began to know me a little bit and dad mom, you know. And uh, so we went in, got our tickets, you know, and said, I think it's 25 cents to get in and see them, maybe 50. Got in there and sat down and and was listening to the show. And and all of a sudden, uh, this neighbor in the hood just shouted out, you know, let little Ricky Skaggs get up there and sing one. And... Uh, Man, I slid out of my seat. I was so embarrassed, so shy. God. So Munn just, he just kicked right into another song. I said, I'm like, good, you know. And so Munn did another song or two and started to talk again. And this fella hollered out again. So I think Munn was trying to, wanted to put a stop to it and get, get you know, get rid of the heckler. And, and uh, so he called me up. He said, mm-hmm. Where is that little Ricky Skaggs? Get him on up here. <laughs> and I come walking up there and, and uh, the stage wasn't very tall off the floor. It was just a little old stage. And, and uh, he just reached down and picked me up by the arm and just set me up on the stage, asked me what I played, and I told him I played the mandolin. Mm-hmm. And he took his big F5, you know, good Lord, you know, we call it Excalibur That's <laughs> what I call it, that sword of his. And, uh, you know, and wrapped the the boot strap around, you know, boot string. Mm-hmm. You know, I thought, man, he's got leather on there. You know, I've got I've got little old cloth on mine. You know, mm-hmm. and he's got he's got a piece of leather on as for a strap. It was just an old boot string, you know. And he had it wrapped around around there, and he just kind of wrapped it around the curl so it would fit me. You know, and set it on me, and uh, asked me what I want to play. And of course, Ruby. Are you mad at your man? That was my that that was your big hit, Rick. <laughs> so that's you know, and thank goodness you know, the band knew it. You know, it was an mm-hmm. Osborne Brothers song, pretty popular and you know around mm-hmm. that time. And uh, so we took off, you know, and I I played played that song and and uh, Munn you know Mun set me off stage and I kind of went on my way, you know. But the next year when when I was uh, when I was Seven, we moved to Nashville, and Dad was always trying, wanting to get me on the Grand Ole Opry. He just thought, if I could get, if I can get him on the Opry, you know, that'd be, he'd he'd be he would he would be he would you know he could make it. He'd go somewhere, you know, mm-hmm. get some good exposure, and uh so I uh I did the show. We we actually met met uh, Earl backstage, you know, at the Ryman. That's when the Opry was down there, and. um you know, he heard just he heard me playing back there. I just had my mandolin out and I kind of leaned up against one of the walls back there, you know, and just playing a little bit. And he just walked by and just stopped, you know, and just grinned so big. And of course, he had Randy and Gary by then, you know, and and so he was probably sympathetic to kids wanting to play, you know, instruments and stuff. And so he uh, he asked my dad if he'd bring me down for an audition the next week, you know. And so we did and went down for the audition downtown in Nashville. He was living in Goodlitzville out here, and I made the audition. And um, so they set up a time to record, you know, do the show, mm-hmm. you know. Well, that show came on and everything, and, and um, you know, it was great and big deal. You know, my, my little grandma up in eastern Kentucky, she was—talk about country now. And I mean, down home, old school. When she seen me on TV, she thought that I could—thought I was— Somehow I was in there that I could yeah. feel that. And she went and kissed the television and patted me, <laughs> as my grandpa told me. And uh, it was just, man, I'm telling you, that's the kind of people I came from, the, the innocent, pure,
0: mm-hmm.
1: godly people, you know, just mm-hmm. the most precious thing. And uh, anyway, when we moved back to eastern Kentucky, I guess, you know, dad had got its back, back hurt uh, when I was eight. Down in a job he was working here in, in Tennessee. Well, actually, he's working in Paradise, Kentucky, which is right across the border from from Tennessee. Here, he's working on the TVA power plant down there, and he he got his back hurt real bad, and and so we ended up moving back to to the old home place there in eastern Kentucky. And uh, I was about eight, and uh, we heard that the Stan- that Stanley Brothers going to be coming through uh, Olive Hill, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, so. We went to see him, you know, and and dad was dad was just Mr. Personality. He he never met a stranger, you know. He'd just go in anywhere, you know, and stick his hand out and shake hands and had the greatest personality. I mean, you couldn't say no to him, you know. And and uh, so he just went went back there and and uh, and met met Carter, you know. And uh, Carter was very <clears throat> very nice, very kind, and he and Dad. Started talking about coon hunting, you know, and uh, so that just that just sealed the deal. That got everything working, you know, and yeah. and uh, Carter was a big coon hunter. So was Dad, and anyway, Carter uh, just asked, you know, what I played, and I said, told him I played the mandolin, and Dad said, yeah, I said, uh, now when he's six, said he played with uh, Bill Monroe up yeah. there in Martha, Kentucky, up there where we're from, and, and uh, said last year he played with Flat Scruggs on the television show, and... And he said, Well, we'll put you on. I said, We'll get you out there. You know, mm-hmm. so that was how I him. Yeah. That was how I met Ralph and Carter. And uh and uh then we went they invited us to come to uh Prestonsburg, I believe, is where there's gonna be the next the next night. So we went up there and played with them. And uh <clears throat> so I didn't see Ralph anymore till till after me and Keith met and I was fifteen. And uh, and we went to we'd heard that roy lee centers that ralph had hired a new guitar player and lead singer roy that that, that larry sparks had left and started his own band and and that uh ralph had hired a, a new singer and uh so we we went to fort gay west virginia this beer joint over there called i think it's called jim and Faze, and um so they uh they, you know, of course, Dad had to take us in because I mean we were way underage to be be in a beer joint, but yeah. Dad took us in, and 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 Keith's brother Dwight Whitley went went with him, and we'd been playing a little bit because we we we'd met and kind of known each other and for you know six eight months maybe, and uh so Ralph called in and said he had a flat tire on the bus and they're going to have to change it and everything like that, so that he's going to be late. And uh, so the beer joint owner came up, and I, he must have known my, me and my dad from you know from playing you know in Louis at some different little things like that. So he said, "said y'all bring your stringing instruments, you know." And 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 dad just dad said, "Yeah." I said, "We got them in the car." So we went out there and said, "We need we need y'all to play for a while till Ralph gets here." He said, "We got a full house and people are wanting some music." So. We got up there and started playing. We felt, you know, a little... I mean, we was excited about getting to play, but we felt a little a little intimidated playing, you know, in front of them people that come to see Ralph, you know. Yeah, right. But the good thing about it is the only songs we really knew was Stanley Brothers songs, because that was mine and Keith's favorite singers, with, mm-hmm. you know, favorite music was Stanley Brothers. And so we knowed a bunch of them. And and uh so Ralph comes walking in about 45 minutes later, and... Uh, and he doesn't go to his dressing room. He pulls up a bar stool and just sits there and listens to us play. He's got his banjo sitting in the floor, kind of got his arm up on it, you know, and he's sitting there with his black leather coat on. and It's like I was just wishing that he wasn't in my vision, you know, because I could see him sitting out there, you know, and I yeah. thought, Ralph, would you please go back to your dressing room because I'm – singing your songs and singing your part. And I know that I'm not singing it good enough, you know. <laughs> and uh, so anyway, um, we met that night, re-met, re- reconnected right. that yeah. night. Uh, and and Ralph, you know, at, when he got up, you know, on their set they played, and he said, well, how about them, them two young boys, you know, Skaggs and Whitley, you know, and— and he said, uh, "Boys, he said we're going to get y'all to get up on our break and play if you want to." And we said, "Well, yeah." So we got out and played on the second break. And uh, so anyway, that's uh, that night. You know that you know I talk about um, to a lot of people. I talk about defining moments, moments that come in your life that shift where you are to where you're going. Yeah. And that was uh, <clears throat> the Monroe night. That was a shift. Mm-hmm. That was a that was a a paradigm shift, kind of for me. Not that it made me go in a different direction, but him um, approving of me and giving me a spot in in the you know in this in his spotlight for four or five minutes. You know uh, that he moved out of the way and let me do something. That did something in my in my psychic. You know, I mean, it just. Uh, um, it made me feel in my heart that I was, I, I had something special. I had something musically that was good, musically that I could get better at it, and something I wanted to get better at. I didn't want to just stay where I was, and, you know, and um, and so that was a defining moment. Then, then getting to meet Ralph and Carter, and then being with Ralph later on that that was that was a real defining moment because Ralph. Asked us to come back in a month or six weeks, whenever he was going to, you know, going to be back there and, and play with him again, you know. So we did the same thing there uh, another <clears throat> another time. So um, and then he told us when he's going to be in Columbus or he's going to be in Cincinnati or somewhere close enough where we could drive because we was in school, you know, yeah. couldn't really travel the road. So he... You know, whenever we could, he he would want us to go out on the road and and just join him. And it was just, it'd be just me and Keith. You know, it wouldn't be Dad and Dwight. It would just be me and Keith. Get up and sing with with uh, with Ralph and in the band. And um, but that started a relationship, you know, with Ralph and and we. So that when the when we got out of school that summer, I had just turned sixteen. Or well, I, did, I hadn't turned sixteen. I, I was going to turn sixteen in in July, but we got out um, in. Uh, in uh, I guess in I don't know, May or something other like that, whatever when the school's out, and so we we went out and spent the uh, you know spent the summer out working with Ralph, you know, and uh, then I turned sixteen in in July and uh, went back you know went back to school in my my high school my my senior year I went back and. Could not wait for that year to get over because Ralph had us. We had a job with Ralph as soon as we got out of out of high school, you know, so we could go be full time. But, uh, but that, you know, that, you know, that moment with Ralph at at Fort Gay, West Virginia, and him having a flat tire, that opened up a opportunity for me and Keith, and uh, and that really is what to me um, started my. I guess started my career. Uh, although you know, the night with Mun was a was a big deal. That was a that was more for me maybe than it was for for my career. I don't know. You know what I mean? I mean yeah. it just internally. It's, like yeah, that. internally, I think it substantiated something in me that was that was worth it. You know, that was good. And uh, and but maybe that maybe that time with Munn and maybe that that thing with Earl and Lester because. Because you know Dad told Lester or told Earl you know that, that I'd played with uh, with Munroe you know when I was five, you know, oh, yeah. and, and uh, so that that was a validation somehow, I guess That's you know maybe, cool, yeah. but i I don't know, but what all of those little things I think um, were just little breadcrumbs along the way that was just enough for me to eat there and then go to another place and have a little nab there and but it was all part of my young growing,
0: yeah. Well, I know our time's limited and I I think we could probably uh we could we could do a lot of podcasts on uh, <laughs> on this cuz I am very interested in. I know the audience would be too. Yeah. But let's try to uh I'll try to keep answers well, short. Yeah. But just just to yeah. get through uh, uh-huh. a little bit more of uh your career and things yeah. that we want, mm-hmm. that I'd like to cover. Yeah. Um talk for just a, a minute about uh being in the country gentleman and uh what those days were like.
1: Well, when I left Ralph, in um, I guess nineteen seventy three, seven, yeah, seventy three, um, I didn't even know if I wanted to work the road anymore. I kind of got just, I don't know, I got burned out. Just a lot of traveling. We we did a lot of dates, and I wasn't making much money. Mm-hmm. Thirty. $30 on Friday and 35 Saturday and 35 Sunday so I could make $100, in, you know, for a weekend, you know. Yeah. And I had a car. Well, I did, I, see, I don't think I had a car payment at that. T- yeah, I did. I had a car payment at that time. I surely did. And because uh, Dad had co-signed a loan for me um, to, uh, to to be able to get. I got me a Volkswagen. And uh, so I, because I'd have to drive down to Virginia to, get, to meet with Ralph, you know, get with him and stuff. So... Uh, I had my eye on a gal, you know, and uh, she moved uh, up to her sister's house up in, uh, uh, up in Virginia, Northern Virginia. And so when I left Ralph, uh, I moved up there and got a job at, uh, uh, at, uh, it was called VEPCO, Virginia Electric and Power Company. And uh, man, that was, uh, that was a tough, tough gig. And so I worked there for a little while, and, well, and what did you do? I was a high pressure boiler operator, mm-hmm. assi- okay, an assistant high pressure <laughs> yeah. boiler operator, mm-hmm. uh, assistant in training, I guess. Mm-hmm. And um, and what I, you know, um, what I had to do. It was, it was an electric company that, that uh, yeah. they they burned oil at the time. They had a lot of coal out there, uh, but it was uh, it was kind of for emergencies, you know. But yeah. but they were burning burning oil. And uh, so, but they were they were making electric, uh, electricity. And uh, so, part of what my job was just to go read meters and check uh, check levels, pressure levels, and stuff like that. And make sure uh, you know everything was, was doing what it was supposed to do. And then, and I worked a, a week of seven to a, seven to three, and then I'd work a, wee, a week of three to eleven, and then I'd work a, a week of eleven to seven. Son, that was that was work. Lord have mercy, me. That was tough. Cause you could just you never get rest. I mean, that whole time you just you just stayed tired all the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, so anyway, uh, I would uh, I, I'd get hungry to play, you know, or just yeah. for some music. And so the country gentleman was playing in uh, uh, at the uh, at the Gray Falk, or yeah at the Gray Greyfalk no at the Shamrock Inn. Uh, in Beth, uh, in Washington, DC. And so I would go down there and, and watch them play, listen to them, you know. And, uh, of course that was when, that was when Goodrow was in the band. Cause mm-hmm. we had met him when we played with Ralph, uh, one time we went to see, uh, the, the country general and they came to, to, to Echo Canyon in Prestonsburg. And, uh, so we went out to meet him and everything like that and see him. And, uh, so Goodrow was there and, and, uh, but, um, and then Duffy had a band, the Seldom Seen, right. up in Bethesda, Maryland, at the Red Fox, and so there was a couple of a couple of pretty good bands to go see through the week, you know. And uh, so I knew Bill Emerson real well uh, and Doyle from uh, from the Country Gentleman, because at that time Doyle was with the Gentleman, mm-hmm. and uh, later on uh, he wasn't with him when Goodrow was there. But uh, when Goodroll left, while well, Doyle came in, and uh, so I knew Bill Emerson real well, and uh, he he was uh, was uh, going to be playing with, or he was was playing with a country gentleman, and um, so he he just called me one day. I don't know how he got my phone number, but he ca- he called me up and uh, and asked me if I would uh, want to come and, and record with them uh, up in uh, up in New York. They were going to go record for Vanguard. And uh, and I said, well, wh- well, Do- wh- what's Doyle going to play? You know, wh- 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 you know, he said, oh, he's going to play mandolin. <laughs> and I thought, you mean you want me to play fiddle? <laughs> and he said, yeah. I said, we we want you to play fiddle. He said, we you know, we've never had uh, had a fiddler on any any of the country gentlemen's r- records, you know. And he said, you you'd be the first, and you play whatever you want to play, you know. And uh, so that's uh, that's how. How that all happened, and and I went and did uh, that first Vanguard record for them, and uh, and then I'd go set in with them, you know, and and that Vepco job was kind of growing old on me, you know, and mm-hmm. so one day uh, Emerson called and said, "Hey," he said, uh, "What would you think about joining the band?" You know, and I said, "Yeah," so I. I I joined the band, started traveling with with them, with Doyle and and Bill Emerson. Well, it wasn't long after that, uh, probably six months after that, Bill uh, Emerson decided to uh, to get off the road and and take a job with a with a Navy band. Mm-hmm. And uh, and Doyle kind of contemplated it for a little bit, but then he decided he didn't want to do it, you know. And uh, so we we had numerous banjo players that came in and out, you know. Yeah. But uh, that—that's how—that's how I got with uh, with the gentleman.
0: All right, uh, let's uh, also talk about getting, uh, you know, in, in JD's band, JD Crowe, yeah. and uh, All
1: right. Um, the whole time that I was with uh, the country gentleman, after Ralph, and playing some of the seldom seen, and all of that, Whitley and I. Had always wanted, or we talked about anyway, getting our own band sometime,
0: mm-hmm. you know.
1: And um, so, when Roy Lee got killed, he got murdered. Um, Ralph, because me and me and Keith went to the funeral, and Ralph, uh, Ralph took us to lunch that day and asked, because I, I was with the, I was with a the gentleman then, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, Ralph asked, uh, asked Keith if, uh, you know, he wanted to take over the job and come back, you know, and sing lead and everything. And so Keith did, and he stayed with Ralph a pretty good while. And uh, But me and Keith was always talking about, you know, get, about getting a band and all that, you know, because so I, I didn't know how long he'd want to stay with Ralph, you know. So I got a call from, uh, from J.D. and said that uh, Larry rice was leaving the band and he said man you're our you're our first call we'd love for you to come sing tenor and tony and play mandolin you know and uh so i was about ready to leave you know re- leave the gentleman i don't know why it just seemed like about every couple of years i'd stay and 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 something would another door would open and i'd move on and go somewhere else maybe maybe three years at the most somewhere mm-hmm. so i uh i ended up um uh, you know one of the things that that uh, that was hard for me, i think in the gentleman band is that I didn't get to sing any, yeah, you know, I played fiddle and would play a little bit of guitar, play you know play play mandolin some when was playing guitar or some you know and um and i just I just felt like I wasn't being used to my my max, you know
0: yeah
1: and uh and so even singing some baritone with Charlie and Doyle. that wasn't my part. I, I right. you know Charlie sang so low that it was you know singing baritone just didn't really satisfy me. So I was ready to leave. I, I was ready to to do something else. So when JD you know said tenor mandolin, mm, wow, <laughs> Tony, oh my god. You know, because me and Tony, I I had worked on Tony's uh uh, uh first record. Okay. Uh um uh, some autumn um what was that called? Um
0: uh. I know California Auto, yeah, yeah. yeah,
1: and uh, and so I worked on that. John Starling produced it for Tony, and so I worked on that with with him. And I really, I mean, when we st- when we sung together in the studio uh, on that record, we'd never really sung together before. But man, our voices just blended, and we phrased easily. He didn't phrase quite like me, but I, but it was. The way Tony phrased was something that he did it the same pretty much all the time, and yeah. and so I was able to to learn it pretty quick and, and 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 sing with him, and so, um, I decided to take you know take the the, the crow band, uh, job. I didn't have a didn't have a good mandolin at all, and uh, so, when I was with Ralph, we were up. At, we every time we'd go to. Port here on Michigan or Detroit area up there, there was a there was an old cat that that uh, would come out and just tantalize me with a lure. <laughs> he had this Lloyd lure that uh, that a guy uh, had sold him. A guy was Jim Williams, the the guy, and Jim had been with Ralph and Carter, so he played played with Carter and Ralph. And and Jim was notorious for scraping off finish and. Cutting down necks and this crazy stuff. They called him Tool because he carried a <laughs> toolbox with him all the time, and it was would work on instruments. Mm. So anyway, Ralph, I love the way that mandolin sounded. It sounded so great, especially from what I from what I had. And um, and that guy would never sell that mandolin. You know, he just wouldn't sell it. And Ralph tried to get it for me when I was in his band. So anyway, I started I started looking around for a mandolin, and and I looked through an old wallet or something I'd stuck in a drawer and I went through some, some business cards and I had, there was that guy's phone number. So I thought, man, he might've died or something, you know, who knows? So I, anyway, I called him up and asked him if he'd be willing to sell that mandolin, you know? And I said, I just took a job with JD Crow. And he said, well, I like old JD. I said, well, I need a good mandolin. I said, man, I don't, you know, I said, you want to sell that? that Well, I wouldn't take nothing less than, you know, and he gave me a price, you know, and it was $2,250. <laughs> why that, that number came up, I'll never know. But uh, anyway, I said, all right, well, you give me a week to get some money together. That could have been $25,000, you know, for me, you know. I mean, I didn't have 2200 yeah, But I bought it on faith, you know. And I knew I had a good job with JD, and I mm-hmm. I end up getting getting it paid off, you know. Yeah. But anyway, I went to the went to Hugh Sturgill. Hugh was working with Ralph, or with with JD, and trying to get uh, get some you know business stuff like that done. So Hugh co-signed a loan for me, and I I I got the mandolin, and and uh, John Paganoni put just a little light finish on it, you know, and uh, and recovered the case because the case didn't have any cover on it. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so. I got that mandolin uh about the time it wasn't long after I had uh, had been in uh with JD and I got it pretty quick. And uh so I stayed with JD well, we went and recorded, you know, I had it before we went and recorded the uh the you know, double, was double up 41 is that is that yeah the, yeah. yeah. And uh or double up 44 that's 40, what it yeah, yeah 44. Uh the the rounder record uh, old home place and um we um I used that mandolin on it and and uh, used it live all the time and and loved playing with them. You know, God, I loved it so much. And uh, um, that band could have stayed together another three or four years, you know. Mm-hmm. That would have been fantastic. But Tony decided uh, he was going to get out of Lexington, and David Grisman had called him about putting a band together, uh, you know, David Grisman Quintet. Right. And that just kind of you know enticed tony to to want to learn and play more stuff I mean I used to go up to Tony's house after we'd play and get off stage at midnight or one o'clock in the morning and, and his wife would would cook dinner for for me and him and my wife would be in bed you know mm-hmm. uh and and uh and so me and me and Tony would sit there and listen to you know all these jazz guitar records you know
0: mm-hmm.
1: and um So, because I I knew he, I knew he loved it, and uh, so anyway, um, he left, and all during those like country gentlemen, um, around the seldom seen time. I mean, I wasn't really a part of that band. I I did some recording with them, but then the Crow Band. Because when I called JD back and told him that you know I would take take the job, but there, you know, I said me and Keith you know, want to, want to put a band together. We, we've talked about it ever since we was kids. And I said, so, uh, you know, if, if the time comes, you know, and Keith wants to do this, I said, he said, well, he said, come and play with us until that day comes, you know? And I said, all right. So that's how I took it on, on, you know, on the notice that, that I, I I might leave. So anyway, Keith decided, you know, Keith was actually had talked about doing the band that ended up being Boone Creek, mm-hmm. uh, but then he backed out last minute, and uh, and so did uh, Mark Pruitt backed out last minute, and because uh, he wanted to he wanted to do a music store with Matt, his brother, and so Balkum I would already had Balkum, and Jerry Douglas was going to leave the gentleman and come and be in the band, and so we just uh, you know so Terry was hired to play fiddle. He'd been playing with Charlie Moore. And, uh, and so uh, Terry was going to play fiddle, but then he he said, well hey I, I kind of grew up playing banjo and so he ended up being the banjo player and hired then hired, we hired West golden and and that's how Boone Creek then was was uh, was developed but um, you know we did two records for for Boone Creek or with Boone Creek and then uh, but we only did that one record studio record with JD but there, there was a there was a live recording from Japan that you know that ended up being you know coming out too, but mm-hmm. um, but that those were incredible musical days. Those days with JD, and then finally getting what I would consider a band where I you know was a partner you know kind of thing. It wasn't with Keith, but it was you know it was still you know a, a partnership with Jerry and and Wes and and Terry Balcom and um, and various bass players. And Vince came in a band there for a while too, you know, worked worked with us. But um, those were years that uh, I grew exponentially musically. I grew in my singing because when I came with God, when I came with with JD, it's like. I'd never, I'd never fronted a show in my life, mm-hmm. and Tony didn't want to do it, and JD sure wasn't want to going to front a show, and you know, Mister No Talk, and uh, so I was kind of left to, uh, you know, to kind of front the show and and introduce the songs, introduce the band, and just and try to try not to be stupid. Although that was <laughs> that I didn't I didn't do real good at that. It just was so <laughs> stupid. We we would tell jokes at each to each other and the audience out there didn't know what we were talking about, but I've, I've learned a little better since then. But, uh, that was my, uh, that was my first experience in that. And of course with, with Boone Creek then, um, you know, I kind of fronted the show in that as well. But, um, those were great years, and, and great years to, especially in Boone Creek. That that was a different thing because we, we we didn't want to sound old school bluegrass. We wanted to, we wanted to be inventive. We wanted to be creative. We wanted to do something that was unique to us, mm-hmm. something, not something that had never been done. <laughs> it wasn't that kind of thing, but yeah. but it was something that we really wanted to, you know, Jerry's Jerry's style. I mean, he was uh, he was taking Mike Aldridge and, and, and Josh. And just really doing some some crazy new kind of things with it, you know, playing the capo and stuff like that. That was never been, you know. And then, you know, and Wes was writing songs, and you know, and I was, you know, I was just trying to find things that were, you know, that that was not necessarily bluegrass, but but maybe even country things that we could take and and kind of make into a a thing that where we could, you know, we could do. Uh, you know do bluegrass instrumentation with it you know and um so that was that was informative years you know creative years for me
0: well i want to make sure that i get in this question that the the guy sent in and okay. it's, it's got to do with what i mean what's you know, coming up yeah. well what you just talked oh, about yeah. before right. um he uh he says he has long searched for the vinyl copy of uh the record with you and keith whitley uh tribute to stanley brothers and this was uh He said they were very young, and it came before the second generation LP. My question about that is, how did they go about recording those two albums? Um, Were they done in studio or at radio stations? And he also wants to know what the the process was like, like on those specific albums. Okay.
1: Well, when we were with Ralph, um, one of the jobs we had was to sell records after the show. Me and Keith would sell records. Well, everybody had a record, but us. Curly Ray had his records out there hawking them, you know, and uh, and keychains, and uh, and me and uh, me and Keith didn't really have anything. So Ralph said, "I want I want you boys to do your record, and and uh, and I'll help you do it," you know, and and uh, so we went to we were going to be in Cincinnati playing uh, playing a show, and I remember it. It was the eighth of January that we recorded uh, recorded that record. We went in in the morning, and uh, and we we are you know we had our songs picked out that we were going to do, and uh, and Ralph uh, Ralph had agreed to come and 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 sang sang some with us, mm-hmm. and uh, and Roy Lee uh, played some banjo on, on some of it. It wasn't it wasn't uh, Ralph on all of it, you know, mm-hmm. but uh, we just used the Clinch Mountain Boys. Curly played fiddle and I played mandolin and and Keith played guitar and sang and and uh, so we, we did, it was a tribute to the Stanley brothers was the name of it, you know? And so we stuck to Stanley brothers music, you know, and, and, uh, and so that's, that's how all that came down. And we, we, we went into this little studio, uh, a guy named Jack Lynch that, uh, lived in Cincinnati. He had a, he had a, a, a record label called J Lynn, J Lynn records, J A L Y N or something like that. I don't know, but it's Jack Lynch records and, and, uh, and um he was an old friend of Ralphs you know and i think Ralph may have done a record for Jay Lynn, uh, with Larry Sparks i'm not sure exactly but but anyway we uh we did did that record and uh i remember you know we went and had a picture done in uh, over in uh, uh over in Sandy Hook Kentucky this guy that, that took wedding pictures and stuff <laughs> or took family po- uh, portraits and so me and Keith had our gold coats on that we wore with Ralph on the road, um, and uh, these LeMay kind of you know jackets, flowery jackets, and uh, so we sent that off to Cincinnati to Queen Queen City, pu- uh, uh, pu- uh, let's see, publishing or is it, that, where they, they they made records. It was a it was a disc, yeah, you know, make, manufacturing, make, manufacturing, yeah. yeah. So anyway, uh I guess Jack took the record down there. There wasn't no overdubs, there wasn't it was all it was all on uh, you know, quarter inch. Right. And so we just, you know, we we did a take and if we liked it, we kept it. If we didn't we'd do another one, you know, give us one more chance. But it wasn't like it was cut to disc or something like that where we had it was sweating bullets that we didn't work a string or didn't sing a bad note. <laughs> and uh but anyway that's that's how that record was cut. Um and I remember, I remember us driving. Uh, Dad went with us. Of course, we had to. He was fifteen. But uh, we all drove to Cincinnati when they called us and said uh, the records were done. And we went up there and picked up box boxes of records. I think we did like ordered five hundred records or something like that in these big boxes. I think there were fifty in a box, so we had ten boxes. Keith took five, and I took five. And uh, so, anyway, we. Um, uh, that we'd sell those on the road and make mm-hmm. a little extra money, and, and uh, Curly Ray had told us about records st- record stores up and down Eastern Kentucky there that we could uh, we could stop at and try to sell you know records to you know, and and we ended up doing that some too. But uh, the second record, uh, second generation bluegrass, that was done um, that was done one day. Uh, we did that that record, and that was at um, that was at. Um, Roy Homer's place, his studio up in, um, in Maryland, either, it wasn't Silver Spring, but it was somewhere in Maryland where, um, uh, Dick, um, oh gosh, uh, Rebel, uh, that had Rebel Records, uh, uh, and, uh, so we did, uh, um, we did that record up there that one day, and then we, the second day, we did, uh, we did, uh, Ralph's record, um, I think uh, something old, something new, no. so, so, let's see, uh Summer Katie's Mountain Dew or something like that. <laughs> that was that was the name of that record. Yeah.
0: Uh-huh.
1: Dick Freeland.
0: Was, was that yeah. one also recorded uh
1: just live, live. to yeah, yeah. live to, to to quarter inch tape, yeah. you know. Two tracks, a stereo, but it was the so same basic no, process no, yeah, on the no overdubs, too, right? yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. yeah. Well, uh And son it sounds it.
0: <laughs> well uh i feel like there's no way to get into a whole lot but um talk about just for a second how the recording process changed for you through the years
1: well goodness gracious um uh, when i uh you know i went to uh, i went to work with emmy lou because yeah. i met her up in dc when i was working with a country gentleman and uh seldom seen um uh, i met her at john starling's house and um so when she, when she put a band together, when she got signed to Warner Brothers, she put a band together. And, uh, and uh, her husband uh, at the time, Brian Ahern, uh, Ahern uh, was a great producer, produced Ann Murray, came out of Canada, came from Toronto. And uh, he and Emmy had married, and, and so he was producing her records, and, and uh, he wanted me to play some fiddle uh, on some of her records, you know? And so we did him, did him in DC, up there in Silver Spring, Maryland at, by, at uh, George Massenburg studio up there. So that was the first time I'd ever seen like a 16 track studio. Mm-hmm. And, um, so then later on, um, I went to LA and started working with Emmy Lou out there after I joined her band and Brian had, uh, had the enactron truck. He called it. And, uh, which is now at the, at the Musicians' Hall of Fame Museum. It's really incredible to go see. I, I can't wait to get in there and see it now that they've uh, put it in the, in the display. Mm-hmm. But so many hundreds of huge records have been cut in there. Um, but um, Brian had a 24-track uh, machine, and uh, so it was multi-track. So we could do overdubs. We could do... Fixes and punch ins and stuff like that, you know. And so that part of the uh, the the recording for me started changing when I realized that I could, I could, uh, I could take have another take of something, Mm -hmm. you know. Um, And uh, so that was that was really really great. I I I really enjoyed the recording process. That was on analog. It was sixteen track, then twenty four track, and then we started doing digital multi tracking. Which uh, would go up to 48 tracks, and so my live in London, two re, uh, record was done on two uh, 48 track uh, uh, machines, and uh, uh, 3M, and um, we we would have to we'd run run one, and then right before we started to stop the one, we'd start the other, so we didn't miss anything, mm-hmm. and uh, you know so we, we were able to do you know do two nights that way. And um, but then uh, um, then music started changing more into um, a um, you know a format like um, like radar, right. you know. And I loved the sound of radar because it's it sounded analog to me. It sounded like sounded like tape, but yet it was still digital. And uh, and then they improved radar, and it really really sounded great. Then Pro Tools was something that came in and and, uh, and started. Uh, you know, kind of getting in the process. So cutting and pasting was, uh, was part of the the equation, being able to take a chorus and, hey, that's a great chorus. Let's just use that on the second chorus, you know, and, mm-hmm. and, uh, no one will ever know the difference. <laughs> and uh, then we started singing the second chorus a little bit different, uh, just, just to make it sound, yeah. uh, you know, sound like it was a different course. But right. anyway, uh, tricks of the trade, but, uh, you know, I've always been a a, a geek on uh, recording gear. I've uh, mm-hmm. when I moved to Nashville, because uh, Brian Brian Ahern had so much great uh, equipment, great mics, and he taught me about mics and vocal mics and instrument mics and and compressors and EQ and you know stuff like that. I learned so much from him. And, uh, and he knows that I appreciate it because I've told him many times uh, how, how honored I was to have been set under his tutelage, even though he didn't, he didn't take me off and say, you know, this is what you're going to learn. I was not in a classroom. It was actually working in his studio. I would right. learn it because I, mm. I, would, I would hear the difference that this mic made as, a, as the, uh, opposed to the other, other microphone and why that he chose to use that mic. And uh, so I learned so much in, about producing, uh, watching him and being with him. And, um, but the recording process these days uh, is, to, is much, much different, you know. And um, honestly, uh, when we did um, Bluegrass Rules, our first Bluegrass record, uh, it, was, uh, it was me and Kentucky Thunder, um, and we got in a studio, and we, we did it on 16-track, it was the old uh, studio that um, uh, Woodland Studio downtown. And uh, I think uh, Dave Rollins and, and uh, Gillian owns it now. I think that's that's where they, they own that and they, they live in there, too. And uh, But we recorded Bluegrass Rules. Uh, I think we had two days that we did that record, you know. But we did it live. Mm-hmm. You know, We I mean, I say live. We, 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 we all got in there and played. Brian Sutton was playing guitar, Mark Fain on the bass, Mark Pruitt was playing banjo, and uh, Bobby was on the fiddle, and I was on the mandolin, and Paul, Paul Brewster, and so that was, uh, uh, and Dennis Parker, and so that was our band, and uh, so when, uh, and Dennis is back with me, praise God, uh, <laughs> after twenty years of being away, and uh, but that was our that was the way we we cut it, and if we if we needed to do a punch in. Uh, because we were sta- so close to each other in there, if Paul had to fix something or if I had to fix something that, that me and Paul was singing on, we'd go in there, put headphones on, and I'd play mandolin and he'd play his guitar, and the guy would punch in. Alan Shulman would punch in and punch out, you know. And we did it to analog tape. We did it to sixteen track. It wasn't 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 hmm. digital then, and uh, it was it was an amazing sounding record. Oh, you yeah. know, it just it's just so fine.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, tell people real quickly about your uh, book where they can find that Kentucky Traveler. You know, yeah. Make sure people know about it. Yeah. Uh,
1: If these if these stories have made you want to go to sleep, or (laughs) or if they've kind of spurred your interest a little bit, you know, stirred you up some, um, you can get my book, Uh, Kentucky Traveler, my life and music at SkaggsFamilyRecords.com, and that's here in Hendersonville, Tennessee, uh, or you any, any, any of the CDs that you would want to buy. Uh, you can download them on iTunes, but they don't have the covers with them. So I like to read covers. I like to read okay. credits and find out who's singing on what and who's playing on what. So it, it makes it a whole a lot easier. So you can get those at SkaggsFamilyRecords.com as well.
0: Mm-hmm. And you're on social media, on Facebook?
1: We're on Facebook, uh, Twitter, uh, Instagram. All you Grams, uh, were are <laughs> out there, and I've been out with Billy Graham, so, and Franklin Graham.
0: Well, hopefully, hopefully, maybe this can be part one of of me. Yeah, because yeah, there's so much come to come talk to, about. Yeah, yeah. We've barely even scratched the surface. That, well, so, I'd love
1: it. So we'll, uh, we'll just uh, we'll we'll make a we'll make a date to do another all one.
0: All right. Time is the most valuable asset we have, and I yeah. appreciate you uh, spending. I'm it glad to spend you the miss. time with you, Justin. Thank, Thank you, you so much. There you have it. There's the uh, interview with Ricky Skaggs. It's been promised for a while and uh, just now getting around to uh, getting the interview recorded and put out. But uh, again, if you enjoyed this show, share it on social media, rate and review the show. And, uh, and now you can go to justamos.com and donate and uh, help keep the podcast going. Um, there are costs associated with it. Um, just paying for the hosting and and going to collect the interviews and things like that. So if you want to help keep the show going, uh, it's much appreciated. And thanks a lot for listening. So long for now.